My guest today is writer-director Richard Bakewell, a veteran cinematographer who has worked with major media figures like Gordon Ramsay and Oprah, Mark Wahlberg, and on noted television docuseries Cops, Last Chance You and Cheer. Now, his new feature film, Roswell Delirium, is a response to both his own journey back from PTSD and the global response to the 2020 pandemic. Now, set in the 1980s, Roswell Delirium connects aliens, the Cold War, and historical tragedy in an intimate and moving coming-of-age drama as it turns back the clock and revisits the 1980s from the perspective of a young woman who believes that she has contacted aliens who can help cure the after-effects of a nuclear disaster. Now, Roswell Delirium brings the elements of aliens, UFOs, Area 51, nuclear war together for a suspense drama that the audience will live along with the characters. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome writer-director Richard Bakewell and his full-length feature film, Roswell Delirium, to the show. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Man, yeah. How in the world did you get into filmmaking? Oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to make movies since I was like five years old. You know, I tell everybody, they're like, why did you want to make movies? I'm like, well, I, you know, obviously Star Wars started the whole uh, transformation. And then as it kind of grew, it was like E.T. and Empire Strikes Back. And it was like, I just really wanted to make movies. I didn't know how. I was kind of the weird kid. And my dad called me a couch potato. And uh, he's like, you watch too much TV. And I'm like, well, I didn't realize at the time, but I was like learning about the craft and what I really wanted to do. And I, I remember when I was like five or six, I asked my uncle for $5,000. And he's like, why do you want $5,000? And I'm like, well, I want to make my own version of Greece uh, so I can be Danny Zuko. And there's a girl that I like. And he goes, enough talking. Here's two bucks. Go away. So, you know, that's kind of where it started. And then it is kind of like it kept going through, you know, my my teen years. I mean, it just really solidified, uh, you know, when you start seeing films like Alien and Predator and all these other movies that just really uh, just impacted me. And it's like this is the kind of path that I want to go on. I don't know how, but I luckily found a uh, film school in Chicago that uh, was pretty, you know, on point called Columbia College Chicago. And they trained me a lot of stuff, you know, that helped me really just kind of get where I am at today. Well, you know, I love the films that you mentioned because back in the day, there was no such thing as CGI. Nope. Uh, everybody was extremely creative. I mean, think about Predator. I mean, yeah, you know, a lot of people still don't know how that was done. And to me, today's CGI, there is some of it is good, but a lot of it you're sitting there going, oh, that's CGI. And it becomes a disappointment, you know, to the moviegoer. But uh, in the old way of filming, especially with Star Wars, when all of the spaceships were models, man, George yep. Lucas had the eye. You really did. I mean, you know, it's like it's like I, at least I respect like John Favreau, who is you know doing the Mandalorian, and he's kind of like recreating the miniatures again. You know, it's like because people can tell when something's not real, and that's why I think people don't like movies that much these days because everything is so fake. And when the audience, you know, knows that something's not real, they're taken out of the movie. Even if for a second, you have to keep them in there every second of the way. And, you know, it's like, that's why I respect people like Bob Rowe and Chris Nolan, because everything is practical. And it's like, that's how you maintain your audience uh, to stay in the film, no matter what. And like, there's too much lazy CGI these days. I always say, if you can't do it practically, 
you shouldn't do it at all. Like, you know, a car explosion's not going to like save your movie. It's like really not going to drive the story home. Like there's all these things that's terrible. It's like, you really should focus on the story and not this like bad special effects, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I look back at a lot of the films, especially even the silent era, like with Charlie Chaplin. Yep. If you look back on how the camera work was done and how they would build a partial set, but then they would build, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they actually painted on a plate of glass to create the element of depth back in the right. day. So when you watch the film, you think everything you see is real, but only half of it is. Right. Or even like, you know, if you look at like Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back, a lot of those are painting mats in the background, you know? So, you know, which is kind of like the old school of television where they'd have like the city landscape and, you know, at the back of uh, Bob Newhart's apartment, but it's all just, you know, translucent, you know? So that's kind of like, the way to trick people you know but nowadays they don't do that they think oh well this green screen and the cgi everything but uh i think there's something to be said about the old way of filmmaking it worked for a reason no that's true now where did you get the inspiration to write roswell delirium oh you know it's funny there's like a lot of places this movie came from you know i uh did this documentary years ago called before i die it's about kids with cancer doing their bucket list uh, and there's one kid in particular who had cancer like nine times. His name was Justin. And the ninth time he just couldn't beat it. He collapsed when him and his mother, Lori, were on a trip to like do another thing on his bucket list. And, you know, she told him, if you want to go, you can go. And I thought that was just so powerful because, you know, she didn't want that, but she was giving him the strength to say, look, I can be okay without you. And that really inspired kind of like the dynamic of the mother and daughter story. Um, and for me, like when you're writing something, you have to take a lot of your own personal trauma from your own life. And, you know, I just kind of started to dive way deep into my own history, childhood, and a lot of uh, situations where, you know, there was a time where I dated someone who was bipolar schizophrenic and I kind of saw a few mental breaks and it was very scary and, and uh, didn't know how to deal with it. And it kind of like, it's something that doesn't like leave your mind ever. You always kind of think about that person and wonder how they're doing. You still care about them. Uh, and, you know, I had to like go to several psych wards, you know, to see her at times when we were together. And uh, I just kind of took all of my experiences and didn't realize where I was pulling from until later that I was really just kind of recreating uh, a life that I have sort of lived already. So. Wow. You know, it's, it's kind of like acting, in particular scenes, and you probably seen this when you were directing, to where the the actor has to pull a, a moment from their past to get that same idea of emotion to do a scene. And I guess oh, yeah. writing writing a screenplay is the same way. It really is. I mean, I don't know how every writer writes, but for me, I like to make it very personal. And even at times, I'll be writing something, and if I really am into it, like an actor. I'll start to get teary eyed and, and I'll start crying through the writing. It's really a weird process. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but it's really this, I think when I find something personal that I connect to, I think it makes it more believable and I really start to envision it more and it really comes out. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, the actor having to pull from a certain memory because uh, one of the last scenes in the movie, Ashton plays the older version of Firefly, has to see her mother again. And I kept those two separate the entire day for a reason. So they'd be fresh when they first saw each other, be very raw and natural. 
And, you know, Ashton pulled a lot from her own past. And the minute she saw her mom walk into the room in, this, in the movie, like she just lost it. And she told me later that there was a point where her hands went numb. She couldn't even feel her fingers because she was so in that scene. It was just incredible. Yeah, I remember. I know that I know that scene. It's a powerful scene. Uh, and you have all three actresses part of that scene but i've got to ask you first because we're going to get to that scene here shortly but how daunting was it for you to write direct and edit your own feature film oh well you know the writing part was was great because i really wrote it as a short in 2018 2019 and then just kept working on it and then 2020 it just didn't happen because of the world's stopping. Uh, so I just kind of like flushed it out for a while. And that, that was easy. And I, you know, and I, once we cast a lot of the people, like, you know, we already had Kylie and Ari cast, they were always going to be the main two. And that helped me have a voice, you know, and I could have a face for the characters that I was writing. Um, so the writing part wasn't as difficult. It, I did like 17 drafts with it. Uh, the directing part, you know, it, it I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult because there's this balance of all these 80s stars, there's all these newcomers, and there's a lot of teenage actors. And I was pretty impressed with how they were all so confident. They knew their lines, they knew everybody else's lines. And I really never had to like get in the way too much. I kind of let them have their idea of the character and i would just kind of steer them a little bit you know i would kind of keep them on the same tone i'm like well now you're kind of going off tone it's getting a little you know campy but for most of the time the, the directing was just pretty much staying the course you know like driving the ship and keeping us on that same path uh and the editing was not part of the plan i really did not expect to edit the film however i hired two editors you know one and at a time and I just really was unhappy with what they were delivering for the cuts. Like I kept telling them there's performances in there that you're not finding. And they're like, it's not there. And I'm like, I was in the room. And you know, uh, when I'm directing, I don't sit there and look at the monitor for four hours. I am right by the DP and I look at the shot, I approve it. And then I just listen and I watch the actors. Like I sit there on my knees and watch them and give them, you know, adjustments when I feel like it's appropriate. Uh, and I just felt like you're never going to deliver the movie that I want. So I have to do it myself. And I went ahead and spent some time and, and cut the movie. And, uh, I think everyone's pretty happy with it. I am. So, <laughs> well, that's really all that matters. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, you know, I love that the time period was set in the late eighties. I mean, you cast definitely a throwback to those 1980s with Anthony Michael Hall, you had uh, Lisa Welchold, you had Dee Wallace, uh, yep. and even Reginald Vell Johnson is in the movie. Uh, how did you get these people together? And I guess you wanted to keep even the even that type of cast solid in the eight or from the eighties. Yeah, you know, uh, when I wrote the film, it wasn't an eighties movie yet. So I really like, I think after draft eight, it became an eighties movie. I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to do an eighties movie and I don't know how. And I'm like, well, now I have my chance, you know, and I just really uh, took a dive into all the uh, movies from the eighties that I loved, like the Karate Kid and, and, you know, Close Encounters in terms of endearment, you name it. Um, and 
my thought was, okay, now I have this movie that's set in the eighties. I needed to feel like an eighties movie. So, um, you know, I always said, Lisa, you know, that she plays a school teacher in the movie. It's like, when I was a kid, a school teacher was the, like a crucial point of a child's existence. You know, they were like a role model. They were kind of like the source of information. And I'm like, I just really needed someone familiar to play the teacher. So that when the people see her, it's like, oh, I feel like I'm back in the eighties again. And that was the kind of like the point was, I want you to feel like you're watching an eighties movie, even though it's not, but I want you to have that feeling, you know, the feel of nostalgia again, and kind of be reminded and have the dialogue the same and getting all like we had, you know, five people from the eighties. So like getting all them attached was not an easy process. Uh, when you're an independent filmmaker and no one really knows who you are, you have to kind of play the Hollywood game of smoke and mirrors and tell people that you have people attached, even when you don't, you know, and um, I played that game for a while and we got, you know, Sam Jones first from Flash Gordon, you know, and that helped us get D Wallace because they knew each other. And uh, I felt like, okay, now we have some credibility with D because she's a fantastic actress, uh, always idolized her. And then we got Lisa and then, you know, Lisa's manager has Reggie Bell Johnson. So they kind of like got them almost together. And then the last piece was Michael Hall, who wasn't completely sold on the idea because it's sci-fi and I think it scares people. Um, but then he watched Ashton's performance, who plays the older version of Firefly. And it was going to be the girl he was going to have the scenes with. And then he was like, I think I, I want to do this movie because it's going to be great. So he just that helps him say yes. So, you know, it, it's so funny when you tell people Anthony Michael Hall and the first thing they think of is breakfast club. Yes. And then they, they still think that he's a teenager <laughs> and you do, yeah. yeah. And then you find out, you know, was it 30, 40 years later, he's an adult. And uh, what was it like working with those eighties actors? Cause you know, to me, Reginald, I mean, I look at more of him coming from Die Hard than I do a uh, television sitcom. Yeah, I don't really like, I didn't watch Family Matters too much. I, you know, Urkel was funny and whatever, but, you know, Die Hard is like my favorite action Christmas movie ever of all time. It's just, it's a perfect movie. Uh, and, you know, like he was like one of my main choices for the movie. And the character that I wrote, you know, he really was as a kind of, villainous person very evil almost like a german type uh informant agent person but with reggie he's so likable that he can't play that evil person at, at all so i had to make his character a little more like reggie likable and friendly and you know he was like just such a, a giving guy and everybody was just like smiling on set they were so happy when he was there and i mean like kylie to him only met the day that we filmed and you know we did like two rehearsal takes and to see like Kylie go toe to toe with Reggie, who's been around for 40 years, I mean, she just holds her ground and they're so good together and they have great chemistry. And I thought, wow, you know, this movie might work, you know, and there was a lot of great moments in the movie like that with all these other actors and, you know, Sam playing uh, Mr. Leonard, this kind of like this interrogation type guy. And uh, I mean, everybody, you know, D Wallace was another, uh, like that was probably my favorite day on set because, you know, as a director, I try to tell the actors or actresses that, look, we're going to be on the close up now. Here's where we're going to go in and we're going to get your coverage. So now you can start to, you know, give a little more. And she goes, I don't care where the camera's at. Don't tell me. 
And I was like, you know, there's some cuss words that she said at me, but I was like, you know, it's kind of funny to D wallace y'all. It's not like a mean way. She's just kidding. And what I realized with D is that she gives the same performance no matter where the camera is. Even when the camera's on her grandson or Ari, who is the waitress in the restaurant, she's giving that same performance. There's tears coming out of her. It's like, I, I've never seen an actress work that hard in my life. I mean, it was incredible to watch. You know, it's, I remember D, D her performance because they're, they're sitting in the restaurant. And of course, there's another scene in the desert. And, but R- Reginald's, his interaction with Kylie was hilarious because, like you said, he's got, you know, you had him with that. It's kind of like him playing that German villain in Indiana Jones. Yes. But, you, you know, Reginald is not going to pull off the bad villain. But what was so funny about his character was, is that he would laugh at, at Kylie not, as a government agent. Yeah. And it's almost like the whole time his tone was like, kid, you have no clue what we do. And yeah. and that's and that's what I found so funny because I'm like, you know what? There's a whole lot of truth in his character. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You think about the people that really do those types of jobs. I mean, they're probably a little more serious, but like with him, it just worked. It felt like very authentic, you know, and uh, I, that's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I mean, it like when I did the first edit, like I think it was like a four minute cut and I was like, I don't really need to change much. Like, I don't know what I could even change. And I think the only thing I ever really adjusted after the first cut was when to put in the insert shots and then, you know, some of the sound effects. But like, I really like those two played it so well. Like we shot that in five hours and we were done. It was so fast. I mean, we got everything. It was, it was, that was the the most flawless scene we filmed on all those. Yeah. Well, Kylie, I was impressed because the whole script portion for what she had to say and to connect all of the ham radios and the signals and all together, I'm looking at her going, how did she memorize all of that? (laughs) Yeah. uh, You know, I I cast Kylie in a movie five years ago called the rabbit hole. It's a little short film. And she was like eight years old and so cute and adorable and, and bubbly and, you know, and I, I thought, wow, this girl's got like the screen presence I can tell. And, you know, she had something I get to see it, you know, like she hadn't done very much. And so after we did that movie, you know, I told her, I said, I have something else for you. And, you know, I really spent a little time with her and her mom and got to kind of see how she was as a, you know, a teenager. And I really kind of crafted that character for her. And I, I told her, I said, there really hasn't been a lead uh, teenage role since like, you know, Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone or Anna Klumski and My Girl. I said, they or, don't or Michael that. J. Fox. Right. Yeah. They don't do that anymore. It's like, it's always a adult playing a teenager. And, you know, it's like, I wrote it knowing what she could do. Uh, I never really had to like work with her too hard on anything. You know, it's like, I put her through a lot of stuff. I mean, we, you know, I put her up, you know, 20 feet in the air on wires, you know, and, uh, you know, get bald cap. I mean, all these scenes, a hot garage to do these radio conversations with, and, you know, some pretty emotional stuff too. And I never got a complaint out of her. It's like, she never complained. She's always focused. Uh, just a, she is a workhorse. And it's like, 
I, you know, she's won like four awards so far for her role. And I'm like, there's going to be a lot more to come because, you know, people are acknowledging the fact that you are carrying the movie. Like, sure, there's all these people supporting you, but you are the center of the movie. And, you know, I think that's why people are responding so well to it because like you're letting a child actor really like take you on this journey. And there's not many actors out there, actresses who can do that at that age. So, well, you cast three unknown actresses for the female lead, which you had, you had Kylie Levine, you had Ashton Selecki and Ariel Bodenhausen, which I thought did an amazing job playing Wendy. I mean, her performance alone was stellar, but why relative unknowns? Well, you know, I think at the time when I wrote it, like we really didn't have a set budget, you know? So it was like, well, here's what we can start to do. And, you know, I I just felt like, you know, there's a lot of people who wanted to play Ari's role to play Wendy. Like I started getting a lot of people who I would pitch to. They're like, you know, I, I like this role, but I'd rather play the mother. And I didn't feel that it was appropriate to uncast somebody who I promised a role to. I was like, I could never live with myself. Uh, I just, I just couldn't do that. So I was like, well, maybe we put someone in the role of Ashton's character in the old, you know, she, they have a, a known person play Firefly as an adult, but then Ashton came in and then like on the callback, like everybody was in near tears. The room was silent. I had glossy eyes and it was like, I didn't have her do it a second time because it was perfect. And I'm like, I don't think anybody could ever do that scene that well again. Like it was, it was like, I, I could see the moment happening on screen. It was so powerful and she really connected to it. And, uh, but I thought, well, okay, now Ashton's kind of ruined my idea of casting somebody known for this role. So I'm going to then try to get somebody else. That's why we got Anthony Michael Hall, you know? So that was kind of like where we just, instead of getting somebody not known for the therapist, we got Michael Hall to be the therapist and, and kept the three unknowns. And, you know, I tell you, like, there was a day where we filmed in the hospital with Ari and, you know, it's like, you know, Kylie got to have the easy way in with the, we filmed, you know, in the classroom first, you know, two days there and then we went to the hospital sets and, you know, Ari had to deliver this amazing performance on day two. And it was like, we did the first take after lunch and, uh, it was so powerful that like, she, I think, was stuck in the moment. And, like, everybody was in tears crying, including myself. And the audio was so good that it, I decided to keep that audio and then cut around the wide shots and then stick in the close-ups and but keep in that same audio because it was just, like, it just broke your heart. I mean, I've never seen an actress go through that uh, and just deliver that strongly. I mean, it was... Like that was the hardest day on set, but like I, I, I know when I picked her, I was like, she's the best person for Wendy's. Was was that the office scene with uh, Anthony Michael Hall? No, the scene in the hospital uh, where she, you know, she's talking to Kylie, and then Kylie is, you know, on the, on the bed, and you know, uh, and her her moments of, you know, like if you want to go, you can go. So. Like that was, that was the scene, you know, I thought that was just like, that was probably the hardest day, but like, it was like, you don't like, you don't really have magic that often when you're making a movie. And that was a day where it was just pure magic. Like everything we got, it was, it felt like this is going to be a great movie. Well, I've got to ask you because one of the things that I noticed in the film, I don't know who you chose as a makeup artist 
<laughs> but oh my gosh, they know how to do makeup. I'm and I'm talking about the scars, the injuries. They were so authentic. And for an independent film, I found that to be amazing. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I found this makeup artist named Rebecca Vandervoort, uh, who lives like a mile away from me, as funny as it is. And I wanted to use her. And then there was a funny time where we were going to start in July of uh, 2022, and she couldn't do it. And I said, hey, we're going to actually push a month. Are you happen uh, that you have any flexibility? Because I don't think anybody else can do these burns and scars and the way that you can. And she goes, actually, I had something canceled. I'm like, let's have lunch tomorrow because I want you to do this movie. And, you know, she and uh, her assistant, Gabby, just did an incredible job. I like they, they came and we did some tests and I was just floored uh, with what they did, even just with like a test day with Kylie and Ari with the burns. And then like there were days on set where, you know, Kylie comes back from Space Rock and she's covered in burns on her hands and her face. And it was like everybody was like just like jaw to the floor. They were like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, you know, we had to transform Ari, too, into an older version for the final piece of the movie. And I think her and Gabby uh, spent eight hours on Ari to make her age that much. And, you know, it's like, Rebecca is just phenomenal. And I'm surprised that, you know, like Rick Baker hasn't like tried to like bring her to his movies or someone else because she's that good. And uh, I think this is going to get her a lot of work. And I'm like, I told her, so hopefully you still uh, will allow me to hire you on something and my lower rates, you know, not these Hollywood studio rates. But uh, I mean, she just did such an incredible job. And it's like without that aspect, a lot of those things wouldn't have worked. I would have had to pull them out of the script and we wouldn't have shot them. I'd have had to have thought of something else, but like she helped me deliver the vision and better than I ever thought. Well, yeah, because with, with the character, Wendy, you had to have her as a younger, uh, mother. And then during that scene, the transition was so natural that I actually had to look at that, that scene where in all three, here, where you had them, like you said, they you kept them apart for the day until that one scene. Yep. But the transition of Wendy aging was so natural that I actually had to sit there and look at her and I go, oh my <laughs> gosh. You almost could not tell that she was she was made up. But, I, but it, it hit me because I'm like, wait a minute, because May Day's older. The mother has to be older, yep. but it looks so natural. So you got a stellar makeup artist. Yeah. It looked um, real. Thank you. It looked, I mean, it looked pretty spectacular because there we filmed at a jail out in Lancaster for the final scene and some other smaller scenes that day. And I never had a chance to fully see Ari in the full makeup because we were still filming. And then like, Right before we were about to film the scene with Ashton and her, uh, I went to the other side of the jail to see how she was looking. And I was like, wow, I didn't expect that at all. And it's funny when we had the premiere in December, people watched the movie and afterwards they had no idea that 
this girl in the dress was Ari, like I mean, and played that role because they look so different. I mean, Rebecca just did such an incredible job aging her without making it feel too much. You know, sometimes you watch movies uh, and it's like it's too much makeup. Their cheeks are too puffy, but they did just the right amount. Well, and the lighting that you used in that scene too played a huge role in that. So, but but still. It was so natural. But there was something else I also noticed uh, in this film. You planted a lot of 1980s elements into this movie, which gave it that true, authentic feel of the time period. But where in the world did you find the things like the toys, the TV, all the ham radio equipment? I mean, it's vintage 80s. It is very vintage. Uh, and I, I tell everybody, it's like I luckily had a great, production designer with Molly Thomas, who found a lot of that stuff. Uh, you know, she, like the, the, the bedroom for Kylie was basically a guest house that she just kind of wallpapered and took all those pictures and knickknacks from all these prop houses. And, you know, she found a lot of those toys and, you know, radios, everything. And it was, it was not an easy ask. I mean, there's a lot of things that had to be authentic. And I tell, I told her when we met, I said, look, People's idea of the 80s is very, it's its kind of like diffused and discolored because people think, you know, the walls are very bright and pink and poppy and bubblegum, you know, but I'm like, it's not that at all. When I grew up in the 80s, it was very like brown walls, middle class, like you didn't have a lot of flashy stuff going on. I think it, the biggest thing you had was a car phone that was like your big flash. Um, so I said, we have to kind of keep it to that world. And, you know, she found everything and just did an amazing job. And, um, you know, the, sadly, like a lot of stuff we had to buy because you can't just buy a ham, you can't rent a ham radio. You have to buy them. You know, they don't rent those things out. So it's like after we were done with the movie, uh, my downstairs was a complete like prop house full of, uh, you know, ham radios and toys that we had to keep. And, you know, but like she just did an amazing job. And, I told somebody recently, like, you know, the classroom in the movie was also a set. And I told her, I said, I'm worried about this looking real. And, you know, her and her team came in uh, and just dressed it to the T. And we were filming at one point with Lisa. And I was like, it looks like a real classroom. And she just made everything feel authentic. And it's like, you know, she is, uh, you know, a few years into the game, but I mean, she just has such an eye for everything. It's just incredible. Well, you you have two characters in this film, which I I laughed. I thought it was so funny. Was the two the two mean girls in the school? <laughs> but the but the but the dialogue with the two mean girls and Kylie is hilarious. Yeah, they. I tell you, the three of them together. I wish I had more scenes with. Uh, like we filmed like, like the bus stop scene almost towards the end of our, our uh, first part of the production. And, you know, we were kind of running into budget concerns for the last week of filming that we had. And I watched that scene that we cut over and over again. And they were so good together. Like they had like such a like a, a chemistry, you know, like, you know, you know, uh, Georgia plays off of Caden you know, trying to be as mean as she is, but she's really not. She's just trying to be like her, you know, and there's a lot of kids like that in school growing up. And, you know, Kylie has to get kind of bullied. And 
I was like going to cut a scene out of the movie and not shoot it because of the budgets. But then I'm like, well, they're so good together. I have to rewrite the scene to make it fit later in the story. So I did. And that's the scene where they get off the bus and start talking about, you know, the Jordash, you know, jeans and everything. And they're so good together. And when I remember when they both came into audition, Georgia uh, came in to be a mean girl. And I was like, she's too sweet. Like the girl is so sweet and polite. I just don't see her as being, you know, the Becky, the really mean girl. But I was like, I want you to be the best friend. I want you to be her because I feel like you have that persona and you're so like, you're so talented. And like when she like talks, like you just like look at her and you focus on her, you know, she has that screen presence. A lot of kids don't. And then, you know, Caden came into audition and just like killed it. Like, I'm like, there's no one else who can play Becky at all. And then she goes to me at the end, she goes, you know what? I heard you're incredible to work with and I'll see you in my trailer. Goodbye. And she walked out of the room. I'm like, who is this kid? You know I mean? So funny. And so, you know, just with it and like the, the, them together, it's like, those are some of my favorite scenes. And I wish I, I almost had an entire movie of just the child actors together because they're so good. Well, yeah, especially the, uh, um, you know, the picnic table scene. That is just hilarious. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like when I write something like that, it's like I really kind of like dove back into my own, you know, teenage years and remember, you know, some of the kids talking about some of the cheerleader girls who were always vomiting in the bathroom, you know, and making fun of them. And, you know, so I, I, I try to incorporate that, but they're just so good together. And it's kind of like, you know, Kylie and Caden are dueling back and forth and going back and forth at each other. And then at, at the at the point where Kylie thinks that she has the edge, you know, Caden comes in and just makes this crushing uh, mm. statement about her dad. And it's like, guess what? I still win. Goodbye. You know, but they're just, oh, it's just like such a great scene. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because was it difficult for you to show the clip of the Challenger? You know, it really, it was a day, like that was day two for us. And, you know, I really had to go through the ringer for, uh, at NASA to even get approval to use that footage. Uh, it took like six months. And I was like, well, I have to have it in there now because they finally said yes. Um, and when I was a kid, that happened. And I remember in the classroom, our teacher crying. And, it, you know, at first when it happened, we weren't sure that it exploded. We didn't know what really happened. We just thought, oh, it's smoking, whatever. We didn't know. We were, you know, seven whatever years old, whatever. And we had no idea. So when we did that scene, I made all the, 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 the actors watch a video of Christy McAuliffe. And I said, I want you to see who this person was. She was a teacher. And I want you to know, uh, did something about her before you watch the challenger. Cause a lot of them did their homework and saw it explode. Some of them didn't even know it exploded. And like when I was talking about her, I got so emotional. I don't know. It just like hit me all of a sudden. I was like, wow, I started crying. And I was like, I had to walk away. And then when they watched it, like we filmed it and just got like their natural reactions. And, you know, and Caden started tearing up and crying. Uh, it was powerful. It's like, wow. It was like, you know, it's it, in the movie. It, it, it's a very integral part because, you know, this bad things happen to, you know, Kylie's father. But I was like, wow, this is still very fresh. This is almost 40 years ago and it still got to me. And, uh, but I felt like to really tell the story of the eighties, you have to have those kind of moments in the film. Like 
that kind of keep it on the course so people feel like, oh, this did happen in the 80s, you know, and or maybe something else will happen differently. But I really felt that was like a moment that everybody remembers. Like, you know, you remember when Kennedy got shot, you remember when, you know, when, you know, the Challenger exploded, you remember like when they land on the moon, all these things in the world and, you know, the 60s or the 80s, you remember these things. And I was like, that has to be something that we put in there no matter what. So it was like a very powerful day. And it was, like I said, I, I had to keep it together, but I had to walk away because like the tears were just so fresh. It was insane. Yeah. It's amazing that 40 years later, it doesn't even seem that long. No. You know, I still remember when um, the other shuttle exploded on reentry and yep. that only happened... maybe a hundred miles from here. You know, they were still finding shrapnel for hundreds of miles, but I've got to ask you something because the (laughs) film itself is very mysterious as a sci-fi thriller. Um, Very much like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Uh, but I saw some minor Kubrick movement with the characters like you would find in The Shining. Yep. Um, did you study some Kubrick before you did this film? No, I, you know, I've always been a fan of Kubrick. Uh, you know, like, it's funny when people watch The Shining and they will say, oh, well, there's things in there that are different and then the other and other scenes, you know, they're not in the same place or they're moved. And he always said that was on purpose, you know, and, Sometimes things happen that way because of continuity, you know, but you can always say it was on purpose or what, but there were things that I really wanted to demonstrate and show that, okay, well, maybe this person isn't there after all. And so as we are moving, we see them. And then as the camera comes back, they're gone. And maybe like this person was gone because the character no longer needs them anymore, you know, in their mind. So I really just wanted to do things where the camera tells you that things are happening, even though you may not pay attention, you may just think, Oh, they might've gotten up out of their chair, but that's, that that's just too fast to happen. So it's a practical in camera movement. It was pretty hard to pull off. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that in the film that I just really wanted to kind of like give to the audience. You know, there's a lot of heavy things that happen in the film with Kylie and, and there's, you know, uh, things happening with the father at home that aren't really addressed until the end, but there are hints along the way. Uh, so you, you're kind of like giving these moments. You're like, why is she laying in bed upset and crying in the ballerina? What is, what is all this representing? And at the end, it kind of tells you the full picture of it all, but it's like there are hints all along the way. Well, I've got to ask you because you bring something up. Remember at the breakfast table with Kylie and then her father, I should yep. say May Day um, yep. and her father. With the shot of the father, you shot it from a downward position where Kylie, it's almost, I guess it's filmed where as if he's looking at her from his position. Is that why you did that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, I was just curious because I, I noticed that I was like, because I know camera angle, when it comes to close-ups, it, it's part of the story. It tells the story. But I got to ask you something, because 
because of the flashbacks in the movie, did it make the editing process a hair pulling situation for you? <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, like I was talking about last night, uh, cause I had a conversation with Ashton, you know, we're talking about the movie and stuff. And I was talking about the flashbacks. Uh, and I said, you know, editing, here's the thing about editing, you know, when it works, it's fantastic. You know, we have a movie and all the pieces connect. It's fantastic. What usually happens with a movie is you have the movie and all these different folders and files, and then you have to find a way to connect all these pieces together when you don't have all the pieces. Like you are always missing pieces of the puzzle. And as an editor, you have to bring them all together somehow and make it work. And, you know, like, I mean, we did like five days of inserts on this movie, just with the ham radios and other things in the desert, just to make pieces work. And uh, it, like the flashbacks were very difficult. Uh, not as hard as it, as I would think, but it was, I think the hardest part for me was interweaving A to B to C, you know, with like space rock going from the time of uh, older Firefly to younger Mayday. I felt like it, I, there was a lot that we had to get to connect the pieces. And even when I thought I had it, I would sit there and get mad. I'm like, no, we need something else. So then we sent, uh, this guy out to Shiprock, New Mexico to film more shots of, you know, the giant volcano mountain, you know, so there was always pieces that I needed. And um, I, even when I watch it now, I'm like, oh, if I just had that one more shot, you know, I could have done this, but like, you just have to at one point say it's enough. And it, it is a daunting challenge. And, you know, uh, when I, when I finally showed the movie, only one person or two had seen the film in its entirety. That was the sound engineer and then the composer, Troy Van Leeuwen from the Queens of Stone Age. Those are the only two people who saw the movie in its entirety until like the audience did. So it was like, well, we're going to see how it really delivers and how they respond to it because no one else has seen this thing yet. So, Well, what do you think about all the current talk about aliens and UFO in the mainstream media now? Well, you know, I, I've always been a believer. I mean, we have to be pretty naive to think there's nothing else out there. I mean, there's all these other galaxies that we can't even get to. They're so far away. There's, you know, black holes, wormholes. Uh, I feel like, you know, aliens have probably been here before. Um, I don't know what, it, what has happened, but I feel like because of who we are and then we're such a violent, you know, country and world and always trying to, you know, threat nuclear holocaust i feel like you know i feel like if the aliens had come here i feel like they probably had wiped our minds from ever knowing it i mean it's i feel like if people found out there were aliens running around in this world and they could come here and get to us people would be lined up at every gun shop in the world like they did during the pandemic and they would be like arming themselves left or right it would be you'd have to declare martial law on the streets i mean i think we'll get out of control but I, I feel like they're out there, and I think it's only a matter of time before one day there will be a reveal. I mean, I feel like there's more to life than just humans and animals. There's got to be a whole lot more out there. Well, for you, it seems like free publicity for the film, too. Oh, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's encounters all the time and, you know, uh, airplane pilots, you know, talking about stuff. And, and even in the movie, I wrote some of the stuff based on some of the conversations, you know, uh, about encounters of other beings up in space or on, a, on an airplane seeing certain lights and everything. You know, there's a lot of real stuff in there. And I feel like these 
these close encounters happen more than we think and hear about. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like uh, if you even get near Area 51, I mean, the, the signage is pr- pretty stout. I mean, you will be shot without warning. So my deal is, is what's so important behind that chain link fence that you're going to kill people on the spot if they even touch that fence? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it's funny, even during my research, I read a lot of stuff where people were trying to report on their findings who worked there. And then when they started to like leak photos or uh, stories, they were never seen again. They were just taken care of and put out into the desert somewhere, you know, never to be found again. So I feel like there's probably something very critical there and they're just never going to show us, you know, it's like we're never going to know who shot JFK, they're never going to tell us these things. We're never going to get to see what's down in the bowels of Area 51. They're just never going to show us that. But Yeah, you know, I remember the two stories from last year. One flew a Cessna on the outer perimeter, just outside to where you're allowed to fly, and mm-hmm. flew all the way around it taking pictures. Another guy picks a mountain range so far away, but he's using an extremely high-powered lens to take photos, which I think probably surprised them when they ended up in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> but they they want to keep that very hidden, very secretive, and they will do everything they have to make sure that it happens. So, I mean, you might have got some exteriors, but like if anybody can ever get an interior shot that's authentic, I mean, my God, that's going to be worth millions of dollars. Yeah, and that person and that person will be uh, buried in the desert and the shovel <laughs> thrown away. <laughs> exactly, you know, six feet under for sure. Well, for you, how was it? What was it like collaborating and working with Troy Van uh, Lewin from Queens of the Stone Age? You know, like that was that was truly. I was I was actually. Of all the actors that I worked with, I was never nervous, but I was cons- I was worried about uh, Troy. I was kind of like nervous about that. So I'm like, well, here's this rock and roll guitarist from the Queens of the Stone Age. How are we gonna do together? You know, how how is he gonna see the vision that I have? And you know, like we, him and I met uh, with uh, my producer Glenn, who set the whole thing up at the uh, Smokehouse in Burbank, and we just talked and had you know went through some ideas. And then I sent him like temporary tracks of like, here's what I think would be perfect for you know these scenes, you know? And it was like, I sent him stuff from like E.T., Close Encounters, Chernobyl, uh, Inception, you know, all these great movies with great soundtracks. And he's like, wow, this is a pretty big undertaking. And um, the first scene that he scored as a test was the scene where uh, Kylie and Ashton come together in the desert. And it was like, wow, this is, beautiful like you know it's like you don't need any sound design here you just need this song to play and then i was sold and then you know him and i were working only like virtually uh never together in the studio because he was on tour the entire time he would be like in germany and all these other countries you know touring with the band and then writing music when he wasn't uh on stage so he would send me stuff like scene by scene and i'd give him my notes and it wasn't be that many and then it's just like it all came together, you know, like there was only a couple of things that I felt weren't working and he just made it, these, these fast adjustments. And I mean, people, when I showed them the opening sequence, they're like, wow, I got goosebumps, you know, like they just really felt the music and it just kind of drove the story. 
and it's like a beautiful score. And I told him, I said, we have to eventually get the soundtrack released on cassette, you know, somewhere, CDs, wherever, vinyl, because it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's up there with the other soundtracks of today. I mean, it's really a, a fantastic job. And he's won a couple of awards so far for his, uh, his score. And I just, I can't wait to see uh, when the world gets to finally see it, you know, and to hear his music, you know, it's just, oh, it's just so powerful. Well, in the theme of, in the theme of the 1980s, I guess you would have to release a cassette. Well, I thought about doing that because they're releasing VHS tapes now for movies as kind of like a you know buy like a hundred or a thousand copies you know as a gimmick, and I'm like, well, we could you know probably do like a dual sided cassette tape like the old days, you know, pretty cheap, and release those out there. People buy vinyl all the time, and people still buy you know CDs wherever you can find them, but I'm like a cassette tape would be like a collector's edition, you know? So I think that would be something we might want to do down the, down the road. Well, if you ever decide to do a DVD, maybe you should do a VHS because that would be, that would be perfect advertisement for this film. Yeah. Well, we, we discussed that because, you know, there's like this, uh, kind of withdrawal happening from like online and streamers where you might buy a movie uh, for $20 and you think it's yours and all of a sudden it is gone off the platform and here you spent $20 to own this movie that you can watch whenever you want and now it's gone because of they labeled, they lost a license contract they want to pay for it again so now that $20 you spent is gone you can't get it back and luckily people like Christopher Nolan are kind of pushing the physical format again and you can't even buy certain uh, uh, like steel books of Oppenheimer that you just can't find them anymore they're gone forever so it's like, I think the idea of the physical format is coming back because people still want to collect, even though, you know, they're used to like having it digitally all put together and nicely. I think, you know, if you have a DVD or a Blu-ray, it's there forever and you can watch it whenever you want. You have to worry about an internet connection going out. It's like, I think that was going to start to resurface again. And that's what we're probably going to do in a few months is start to work on a Blu-ray DVD release. Well, you know, Matt Damon recently said that, you know, when you make a film, like a big studio puts out a film yep. and he said, let's say it does, it does halfway decent at the box office. Maybe it wasn't what they wanted, but he said you could always depend on the DVD sales to make yep. up the rest. And of course, from those sales, the residuals were much higher when it came to all of the actors. Yep. Now he even noted that we don't have that anymore. So when it goes straight to streaming, you don't have any money to make once you place it there. So yes, the, the physical DVDs now are coming back. And yeah, people are ticked off. Man, I paid 20 bucks to watch that film from here to eternity and now I can't nope. see it anymore. Now they go back and buy the DVD. And I'm sure the studios would love to see the physical uh, DVD sales go back up into the billions of dollars because even with the music industry, vinyl last year uh, made over a billion dollars. Yeah. And, you know, luckily, like, uh, I know recently, like, TikTok lost a lot of their big artists, you know. So I think you're going to start to see a trend where, like, all this giving away music for free and movies has to come to an end. You know, people need to be paid for what they're worth and, like, I remember when I was, you know, growing up as a kid, going to the record store and buying a CD or a record, it was like a big deal. And now it's like people just go on Spotify and listen for free. And it's like you might pay a couple of dollars a month, but like 
the artist makes no money. And the same thing with like, like I said, the DVD sales, that's more money for the, the actors to make at a later date, you know, that the more they sell, the more they make. So I feel like that has to come back. And I think what might really help is like, if we start putting like more like a, like these vintage stores back in place, like a blockbuster or something, you know, just give people, Oh, here we are again. We're renting movies. We can buy movies. You know, it's like, it becomes like an event, you know? Oh, well, yeah. I remember the event when you would walk into a blockbuster and then you go to the new release, the film you've been waiting to see on a Friday night and they're all checked out. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I remember that quite a bit. And I remember like, I would, I would go there a certain time. And then like when people were turning things, I was like, what are you returning? And I'm like, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, that was like a good score. He could get what they just brought back right away. It goes right out, you know? So that was yeah, but, but then you had to put your name on a waiting list. Cause you would tell the clerk, Hey, call me when somebody brings this film back. And then they had a big running list from everybody in town. Oh yeah. But sometimes the clerks didn't care if they knew you, you know, okay, here, just take it, you know, just take this one. And this came back in, take it and go. And you know, that was, that was a good day. It was like, it's actually like, uh, you know, I love going to the theater and watching movies, but like back then, like going to the store, you know, with your friends, whatever, picking out movies you're going to watch. It was like, it was a good way to bond and just get together. And, 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 and it became a, an event nowadays. People just stream like an entire show and like a series in one day and it's over and, uh, all by themselves. I'm like, but like watching movies from a blockbuster together, it's like it was kind of kept people more together, I think. It does. Now, will we see a possible sequel to Roswell Delirium? Because I noticed that on IMDb, you have Space Rock possibly uh, in a working script. Yeah, well, I've been having some ideas of the last couple of months and everybody has been asking that question. And I told everybody at a Q and a recently that, uh, there is a sort of sequel. It's not a complete sequel of Roswell, but it's kind of a spinoff of that world and kind of like a world where basically there's less, uh, things where that could be controlled. There's not really food anymore. There's not power. Uh, it's kind of like the Walking Dead situation for all these survivors of alien and nuclear attacks. So there is something that I'm writing that's happening right now, but uh, it'll be a couple years. So. Well, Richard, I mean, this is a this is a very cool film, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, Roswell Delirium. This results in a very rich, complex story that evokes a new perspective on the 1980s by plumbing the emotional depths of a strong, heroic young woman driven by the dogged pursuit of the truth, even in the face of her own destruction. Now, during the 1980s, the U.S. is hit by a wave of nuclear attacks, and after the fallout, those who remain pretend like everything is normal, even when they're experiencing radiation poisoning. But a young girl named Mayday tries to make contact on a series of ham radios with her father who is in space on a shuttle mission. Now, instead of making contact, she receives an intergalactic distress call from space that leads her on a journey to Space Rock, the land where Area 51 once was. As to what happens next, well, you'll have to watch the film to know that. And Richard, where can everybody see Roswell Delirium? Currently, right now, we have a festival on the 24th of February, the TLC Chinese Theater 6, uh, playing in Hollywood, California. Uh, and then we have a few more festivals in the, and I think uh, the Phoenix Film Festival, 
Um, and then after that, it might be going to Barcelona. And as we're kind of like getting the final run of the festivals, we are currently in negotiations of a few contracts for streaming. So we should have a home by the end of May, June for somewhere uh, people to watch the film. Oh, well, great. Well, uh, well, let us know what the, when those dates are. And then that yep. way we can tell all of our uh, viewers and listeners so that way they can be ready to see Roswell Delirium. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, if you love sci-fi, this is the film. If you love Close Encounters with the Third Kind, this is that kind of film. Has that same kind of feel, but that 1980s vibe, man. You just you just can't beat it. And Richard, again, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this picture. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, you can catch all the replays of our interviews with the top film directors, producers, screenwriters, and actors, and more on our website at bondoncinema.com. We are also available on YouTube and a dozen audio platforms as well. So I want to thank you for watching and listening. And as for me, hey, I could say beam me up Scotty, but that's not this kind of film. We may have to put on our tin hat for this one. But hey, I'll see you at the movies.